What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. So what did I miss? What did I miss? Virginia, my home sweet home, I want to give you a kiss. Thomas Jefferson is back from Paris and wants to know if there's anything new on Disney Plus, Josh. That's David Diggs as Jefferson in the Broadway phenomenon Hamilton, which, yes, did come to Disney Plus last weekend. This week, we're going to talk about the version that made it to the streaming service. Plus, our 8 from 88 series continues with Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club and new on Netflix, The Old Guard. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome back to Film Spotting. This week, we get back to our 8 from 84 series, eight episodes looking back to the great movie year of 1984, a year we personally have a lot of nostalgic affection for, Josh. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was 10. You were, what, nine, nine. probably? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So great decade for us, the 80s, Adam. Absolutely. And this week's pick is not a nostalgia pick, but it is a blind spot for both of us. Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club, a pretty infamous financial bust way back in 84. And then just last year, Coppola released an encore edition of the movie with about 25 extra minutes. That version, pretty well received by critics. We'll see how we received it later in the show. But first, Hamilton debuted on Broadway just five years ago, but that's about 25 mental health years in these United States. So what was it like to watch the musical in 2020 and at home? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Not surprisingly, a lot of listeners took in Hamilton this past weekend, Josh. We heard from many of them on social media and via email. And for the second week in a row, we're featuring our former PA, Andy Mitchell, here right off the top. He sent us these comments about his viewing of Hamilton. As I wrote on Letterboxd, Hamilton is special for me and my partner, Colette, because she adores musical theater almost unconditionally. And watching it on stage in Chicago and on TV next to her is as close as I may ever get to experiencing that kind of love. That said, here are two minor quibbles. I respect Lin-Manuel Miranda's intentions, but I still wish he didn't give up those two Fs for Disney standards and practices. Let's show these Federalists what they're up against. Southern mother Ganikfuf, Democratic Republicans, <laughs> just doesn't have the same punch. He's right about that. Two, I love live theater and live music. Being in a room where that kind of magic happens will always beat seeing a recording of it. And yet we know from Stop Making Sense and Homecoming that it's possible for filmmakers to creatively shoot live events to make them feel like more, like cinema. I think Hamilton is very well shot. I can see myself watching it a third or fourth time and focusing solely on what the dance ensemble does. I think seeing Philippa Sue's acting prowess up close and Jonathan Groff's spit take is everything. But I still wish it took more risks with longer takes and different angles. Otherwise, it's perfect. Thank you, Andy, for that perfect setup. He's not on the payroll anymore, but he's still doing work for us, Josh. I appreciate it. 
on one hand, you have the mostly superficial question that I'm sure we've both seen popping around social media over the past few days. Is Hamilton a movie? Which really seems to me more about how are we supposed to classify it potentially for award purposes? And then there's the more important related question. Is it cinematic? Do you too wish that director Tommy Kale and his crew had experimented more with angles and length of takes? Or should we all just be satisfied with the front row seat? We got to something remarkable, the original Broadway cast stage play. So do I wish the late Jonathan Demme had been able to do the movie version of Hamilton? That's essentially that works for me. Right. I mean, that's yeah, that's the idea. Let's say yes to that. <laughs> I think I think we'd all like to see something like that or another filmmaker who has been who has shown themselves to be a adept at not only respecting the stage performance, the stage art, but translating it in a unique way to cinema. Sure, that's ideal, but I don't really get too precious about the definitions of presentation, Adam. And for me, it always goes back to, I'm the kid who fell in love. I fell in love with Hitchcock as a kid, I should say, watching his movies edited for television on probably a nine-inch portable TV set that somehow my parents let me have in my room. So if I came to really connect with a genius like Hitchcock in that sort of venue, I think art will always ring true if it's great art. Um, Now, that said, each cultural artifact probably has its ideal venue, right? The one for which it was made. So Hitchcock, yes, if you can, you should see it in a theater. Uh, Hamilton, if you can, see Hamilton in a theatrical venue. You know, a filmed version of Hamilton on the stage blurs these lines a little bit. So it kind of makes the conversation moot in a way. It is its own thing. And maybe that's why we do need someone like Jonathan Demme in this case. But I don't know. Perhaps it's less helpful to talk about whether or not it's a quote movie and more interesting just to compare the theatrical experience with the screen experience. And fortunately, we both are lucky enough to have seen it in the theater. And so we can do that and talk about how we responded to to this experience on Disney+. Plus. I can say, even when I saw it live, I was in the balcony, good seats, but you know, you're in the balcony. And so the ensemble choreography resonated more with me from that vantage point than the little performance choices made by the actors, which the camera captures here. So think about David Diggs as Lafayette and Jefferson. He puts a little flourish into every movement he makes. And you can see that on the screen when you're watching at home. How great to see the faces in close-up of these performers, because there are some of them who are giving, you know, performances worthy of the screen. I think particularly Anthony Ramos's John Lawrence, he's just magnetic. Yeah. And it reminded me that he was Ramon in A Star is Born. I'm absolutely thrilled he's going to be the lead in the film version of Miranda's In the Heights, because he definitely has real cinematic presence. And as for Miranda, I don't know. I agree with Andy. You, you don't hate to see that censoring, but I don't know if Lin-Manuel Miranda ever really sold an F-bomb. It, it just doesn't he – does, he just doesn't seem to have that sort of energy in him. And I will say watching this – I didn't see Miranda on stage in, in New York. I saw the show here in Chicago. But still watching this, it does, it does make me wonder about – Lin-Manuel Miranda casting himself in the lead. Obviously, the guy's a genius to conceive of this, and the music is amazing, but maybe it struck me he should have played Philip Hamilton and given the title role to someone like Diggs or to someone like uh, Anthony Ramos, because the screen does expose a little bit 
I don't know exactly what it is. Maybe you disagree or maybe you can nail it for me. Um, that lead presence that I'm not saying he's bad at all, but mm-hmm. that it, it seems to be a little lacking when you're up that close compared to some of the other stage presences that he's next to. So still enjoyed it, still enjoyed him overall and was thrilled to be able to re-enjoy it this way. But I guess those are just some of my initial comparison mm-hmm. thoughts. Yeah, it definitely feels a little bit like blasphemy to be too critical of Lin-Manuel Miranda when we don't derive any of the pleasure from Hamilton that we do currently. And some of us have, most of us have, who are into it for at least the past four years without him, right? So whether he plays that part or any other part or no part, I am grateful to him. But that doesn't mean I, too, am not aware of his limitations on stage as a performer. And it's partly heightened here, yes, by the camera, what it exposes, but also just when you have that talent surrounding him, as you touched on, it's unavoidable. And also, if you've seen it on Broadway, which I was fortunate enough to do actually just a few months before this was shot in June of 2016, I saw it in February 2016 with this entire same cast. And I came away then, and I said it to plenty of people, I may have even said it on this show briefly in a segment, that he was the weakest link for me as a performer, but there was still something about the way everyone else rallied around him, the way Mm -hmm. he still felt like the leader of the ensemble, but more importantly, how he within the confines of the show, even though it's called Hamilton and obviously he is the protagonist, it's so much about those other characters, everyone that he surrounds himself with, whether they're friend or foe or lover, whatever the case might be, he always gives those people numbers where they shine and mostly multiple numbers where they shine. So I think even he would be the first to admit that he does not have the stage presence of someone like David Diggs. Few people do. He doesn't have the singing prowess of someone like Jonathan Groff. Again, few people do. There are definitely people within this cast, including Philip Sue and Renee Goldsberry, who outperform him. I will give you that. And you know what else heightens it? When you have seen the Chicago production, I'll just go to bat a little bit for our guy here in Chicago. When you've seen Miguel Cervantes play Mm -hmm. Hamilton, you also recognize that there is someone who's better at it than Lin-Manuel. I just do feel that way as it sounds like you do as well. Yeah, I do. But but I'm glad you pointed out that element of it's not like he's he's preening or hogging the spotlight. You're absolutely right. This is a communal effort in in the way it was envisioned and the way it was um, rehearsed, you can tell. And all of that does spill out in the performance where there is a communal feel to this production. And it brings it brings me back to Demi, because what what has he done in something like even even the Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids documentary? Yeah, you'd think it's going to be all about Timberlake, but no, Demi emphasizes that great backup band and every individual mm-hmm. in it. So someone like him would have been perfect because that's what Hamilton itself is doing, is making this a true ensemble production. And Lin-Manuel Miranda deserves the credit for envisioning it that way and directing the cast and, and being the leader, the leader of the production. Production, yeah. if not the leader of the performances, let's say. Yeah, I definitely walked out of that play in 2016 thinking about a lot of different performers and performances, but David Diggs in particular. And no matter how many times you've listened to that original cast album, it does not capture what it's like being in the same theater with that performer, with that type of charisma and talent on stage. And maybe the seat we get here watching from home on Disney Plus doesn't match that live experience. Of course it doesn't. But 
it's definitely far better than only listening to it, right? Oh, Which yeah. is the only experience we've only been able to imagine. Most people who weren't fortunate enough to see it have only been able to imagine what it's like. And then when you actually see what he brings to the role in terms of his flair, that yes. sense of performance, right? When you see Jonathan Groff, I mean, he's just an unparalleled performer. And you can listen to those songs by King George III and recognize how fun they are, how funny they are, how proficient a singer Jonathan Groff is, but watching it, whether live or on TV, and seeing those little glints in his eyes. Yes, seeing the yeah. spit, too, <laughs> but the the just expressions he makes, the things that maybe you couldn't see totally from the balcony, but here a camera does capture for you, the twinkle in the eye, the little twitch of his lips, a shake of his hips, whatever it might be, that's what really makes that performance of King George III. And I am, I guess, I think I've used this word already maybe multiple times, but I think that's what I'm mostly grateful for, is the fact that the whole world now can actually see and experience that, among so many other things that are wonderful about Hamilton. Groff is just having so much fun with that part and, and encouraging the audience to do the same. And, you know, that's another crucial thing about this being a filmed version of a live performance rather than a quote-unquote movie is you can still hear the audience. And I loved that because this was one of the most interactive call-and-response really experiences I had in live theater. And some of that was because everyone who came to this show already knew the song so well, right? And so they were interacting, they were responding, they knew when the laughs were coming, and especially during Groff's songs. And I can testify that you're you're speaking the truth when it comes to Diggs, Adam. Um, in terms of having heard him singing on that soundtrack well before I saw this Disney Plus version and thinking that, look at everything I missed. Those things I was talking about, the little mm-hmm. flares, uh, the the gestures and, and the twirls and, and everything he would put into the physicality of the performance yeah. beyond the singing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's doubled. I mean, the enjoyment is doubled. Yeah, there's a bravado to it. There's yes. a bravado to it that just can't come through your speakers alone. In terms of the cinema question, kind of going back to the setup here, in the fuller numbers especially, and I absolutely understand the instinct and impulse here, you want to capture that full stage experience. The ensemble is such a big part of this. I probably should have known this, like been able to articulate it, but it took my daughter Sophie earlier today, and she's the one who got into musical theater and is now obsessed with it because of my initial obsession with Hamilton after seeing it. That really launched her whole love of not only this show, but so many others. She pointed out that, of course, the number Burn, which Philippa Sue sings, is the only one in the whole show that there's only one person on stage for. It's the only solo. There are others maybe where you have a couple people, but for the most part, right, it's these bigger production numbers. And I can appreciate that the camera then is wide most of the time. I definitely don't think going for close-ups alone equal cinema, but I did feel that there was a little lack of intention to some of the cuts, at least early on in some of the numbers, where we're cutting between different angles that are essentially the same scale of shot. So they actually feel a little bit jumpy and as if they don't really have a purpose. And when the cuts do have a purpose, then you're getting an experience that doesn't just capture the musical but enhances it, right? Which is what we always talk about with Jonathan Demme in particular. And I saw this, I should point out, the experience I had watching it was pre-July 4th with my family and my sister-in-law and her family. And they have this lovely backyard and they have a screen that they can project on. And so you fire up the Disney Plus account and we were watching it in the backyard 
in this really nice wooded area, saw it on a fairly big screen, and it was a great kind of communal experience we had. I may have had a drink or two in my hand, Josh. <laughs> that does mean, not at the same time, I was maybe gonna not, say. <laughs> but that does mean I wasn't taking Josh Larson-esque notes. And I do remember one moment, and I just can't recall completely whether it was a Burr-Hamilton moment of tension or whether it was Eliza and Hamilton. But there's a great bit where just in the back of the frame, you see one of the people lurking that that person is singing about. And it's not exactly that they're even off screen, but they're just far enough back in the frame that having them in it adds a tension, a dramatic tension that otherwise wouldn't be there. And if you were in the theater, you might be in the balcony or you might be at an angle where you wouldn't even see that person in Mm -hmm. the frame. Or if you were there and you even could make them out, they were just getting lost in the sea of the whole group on stage. But watching it on screen, it allows that shot, as I said, to have some purpose. It clarifies that. It makes a two-shot out of something that otherwise for someone in the theater couldn't make it a two-shot and amplifies those emotions. And there are moments like that throughout Hamilton that Kale takes advantage of. Yeah, I think one of the cinematic touches I appreciated, and I don't know if it was technically an overhead shot or just an extremely high angle of the stage, but really emphasizing that moving circular Mm -hmm. center section of the stage that they employ so brilliantly, you know, mostly in the flashback sequence during the wedding and just getting a different angle on that from the camera that I think really only the camera could provide was not only honoring the production design and stage Mm -hmm. work design, but really giving it this other cinematic level or feeling at least. Yeah. And I think that could have been a crutch too, Josh, that could have been a go-to overhead shot. And instead we get maybe two or three of them that I really recall. And every time, every time I felt like, again, it had purpose. I felt like it hit the way it was supposed to. Yeah, yeah. You need to use restraint if you're going to employ that for sure. So it's it was interesting. I wanted to share something I was just reading last night. Um, so ever, after having watched Hamilton and knowing we were doing this show today, and it speaks to this kind of question we've been talking about, the cinema against the theatrical experience. And it's actually from James Baldwin's The Devil Finds Work, this like book-length essay of movie criticism that Baldwin wrote. And the essay is mostly about movies, but this is the passage I came across last night, which He talks about seeing Orson Welles' production of Macbeth when he was little. Here's what he wrote. For the tension in the theater is a very different and very particular tension. This tension between the real and the imagined is the theater. And this is why the theater will always remain a necessity. One is not in the presence of shadows, by which he means the movies, but responding to one's flesh and blood. In the theater, we are recreating each other. So Baldwin, you know, as he so often does, is very bodily minded and just really getting to the heart of that experience of being in a space where the performers are sharing it with you and you could theoretically reach out and and touch them. So, you know, while it's really good and wonderful that Hamilton is available streaming right now, I think it's worth remembering, you know, what we've lost with live theater being shut Mm. down. I think Broadway announced not too long ago through the end of the year, I believe. And this idea of, of recreating, of responding to flesh and blood Hamilton live, as I said, did that as much as any theatrical production I've ever seen that call and response element, that symbiotic relationship Mm -hmm. between the audience and the performers, which was encouraged, which existed between the performers themselves. Thanks to Lin-Manuel Miranda and the ways we discussed. Yeah. I just, I loved 
hearing that audience. It was a simple thing, but it might have been one of my favorite elements of watching this on streaming is just getting to hear the live audience respond as well. Yeah. And I think they're moments that otherwise wouldn't come through as being funny on the album right now register because sure. sometimes you just need that nudge from an audience member but what they're responding to is something they're seeing something yes. they're seeing on stage an interaction that again when you're just listening and trying to imagine the scenario you otherwise wouldn't get i did want to talk about i guess two moments that stood out to me in terms of surprises and they were surprises in the sense that even though i have seen this actually four times if you count chicago and i've listened to it who knows how many times one of the touches that maybe is something Lynn did live on stage when I saw him. Maybe it was something that he added later. It was probably always there. But again, when you're you're focused on so many things during a live performance, sometimes you can't hone in on it. And here I noticed this lovely little moment during my shot where Lynn transitions from that kind of blustery beginning to the more mellow i'm a diamond in the rough and he moves his hand in a way when he says just that line that it's actually as if he has a little pact made with the conductor and mm. the the orchestra that he's gonna direct that part he's <laughs> yeah, actually yeah. completely in time with the music and he takes them out of time he goes from that faster more upbeat beginning he actually slows it down so we can kind of more smoothly and rhythmically say that line i'm a diamond in the rough and i just love that idea that he's on stage in that moment just for that line deciding to play conductor in addition to hamilton yeah i could totally picture that moment as you describe it it's great the other one that's just a rhyme and this is the thing no matter how many times you listen to hamilton it does have so many words in it that you can always discover some new element or some bit of wordplay that didn't register before. And the one this time for me was Burr when he's singing Your Obedient Servant. And he says, how does Hamilton, an arrogant immigrant orphan bastard whore's son, somehow endorse Thomas Jefferson, his enemy? Now, you really do need Leslie Odom Jr. relaying those lines, mm, not it me. helps. Of course, it helps a lot. But how about that? It's like a combination of, I suppose, middle rhyming and assonance where he actually rhymes whore's son with somehow endorse Thomas Jefferson. The the endorse with horse, whore's son and the Jefferson actually taking on the son as well. I mean, that's that is one of those examples, and there are so many in this play, of Miranda's genius, of his skill with words. Well, and but also, honestly, of the skill of the performers, because that's, yeah. Yeah. you're, you're, you're right. presenting a challenge for anyone to make that rhyme work. I mean, you totally. could say you're giving them a great line, or you could say you're giving them something they're going to struggle with. And because you have Leslie Odom Jr., he pulls it off. How does Hamilton, an arrogant immigrant orphan bastard whore's son somehow endorsed thomas jefferson his enemy a man he's despised since the beginning just to keep me from winning i want to be in the room where it happens now before we close i suppose did you see over the weekend any of the backlash i mean inevitably there had to be a little bit of backlash or some kind of counter response to all the praise there was a twitter moment all about people bringing up some of the criticism that has been lobbed at Lin-Manuel Miranda and Hamilton, mentions of Toni Morrison and her play, which is this fictionalized version that's called The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda, and it has these historical figures who 
present to him, I, I suppose the description I've seen is it's like Dickens' A Christmas Carol. And basically it, it takes these people like Hamilton, some of these slave owners, and it turns them into abolitionists. Mm-hmm. And understandably, that hasn't set well with everyone. But did you have any response or see the play in any kind of new light in this current 2020 context? Yeah, well, you you know, you know, know my issue with a lot of biopics is the hagiographic element that they can get to, where this person is just going to be, you know, maybe we'll give him one or two flaws and, and have a scene where we show that he's not perfect. But in the end, let's put up a statue. <laughs> and statues are all on our minds right now. Mm-hmm. And I think even when Hamilton first came out and, and I did see it and even listen to the soundtrack, it struck me as falling for that a little bit without even knowing the historical knowledge of Alexander Hamilton. And, and so I think it's it's fair to critique that. I think in the last couple of years, especially people are becoming more mindful of being sure to represent history as truthfully as possible. But I would also say, though, Adam, it's still a really powerful ode to me to the value of the immigrants in America. Mm -hmm. And although it is not presenting history in its entirety for this character, I think we never get art that presents history in its entirety. And, And I think When you talk about something like the American dream in particular, that's something that needs to be continually redreamt and redefined because it's not something that was ever perfected or ever really existed. There were these ideals, and Hamilton is a perfect example of that, these ideals that weren't even held up by the people who wrote them on paper, right? Mm -hmm. And so art is one way to keep saying, okay, this country claims to value these ideals, and let's dream towards them. Let's dream about what it might look like if we did uphold them or we did fight for them. And I think Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton does exactly that. Now, is it entirely crossing every T or dotting every I and doing that? No. But again, art rarely does. So as a redream of the American dream, I, I value it more highly than really getting caught up in mm-hmm. the historical details it might get wrong. I think we need to know those. I don't think we need to cover those up. But I still think it's just it has immense value for these other things it's doing. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I'm grateful that we can have both exist. We can have Hamilton and we can have the critiques and we can have the interpretations and analysis that we would get with something like the Toni Morrison play I mentioned. I totally understand the disconnect of black performers, especially right playing white slave owners. And as I said, portraying them, too, as abolitionists, it feels like a rewrite of history. Mm -hmm. And I also saw what was not lost on me rewatching Hamilton, which is that, you know, you've got Hamilton, the banker, this ultimate Wall Street guy in a lot of ways, like it doesn't get more establishment, it seems, than Hamilton. And yet you're propping him up in the way Miranda is. But I also know the context in which I saw it, which, as I said, early 2016, late summer 2015 is like the third wave of the unrest in Ferguson still very much in the wake of Black Lives Matter at that time just becoming a cultural force. And I had the same response now having some distance from it I had then, which is, you know, it's not just about these American revolutionaries. It's about revolution and it's about reinventing history the way they do through hip hop. And by having black performers portray founding fathers, that still feels to me like a revolutionary act. There's something still inherently daring and provocative about that. And I... I'm struck by the power of Philippa Sue 
and that solo burn and how much I do love that song. And it's maybe the most powerful song in the movie, and especially when you pair it with what comes not too long after the end, the eulogy, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. When she says, I'm erasing myself from the narrative, let future historians wonder how Eliza reacted. And then that final song, you recognize that, yeah, our country is still a work in progress or not. Maybe progress doesn't feel like the right word anymore, but the provocation of that, of of especially reinforcing to maybe marginalized voices that you do get to create your own story. You get mm-hmm. to create your own narrative. A play like Hamilton then, in that context, it doesn't feel to me at all like it's closing the book on history in any kind of definitive way. It's actually trying to open it up yes. in a way that that tells people that, you know what, the future is unwritten. The future is unwritten, and you get to participate in that. Yes, yes, exactly. It's it's a challenge presented, not a case closed, uh, mm-hmm. is, how, is how the musical struck me. You're right, as radical with its cast when it first debuted, and I think it still strikes me that way now. Hamilton is available exclusively on Disney+. Plus. If you have seen it and agree or disagree with our takes, I have the honor to be your obedient servant. A.Kemp. Feedback at filmspotting.net is the email. Who are you? You can call me Andy. I lead a group of soldiers. Fighters like you. With an extremely rare skill set. What do you mean? Mother? That's the trailer for The Old Guard. It's the new film from director Gina Prince-Bythewood, and it's new to Netflix this weekend. Stars Charlize Theron as the leader of an immortal band of mercenaries who fight to protect the mortal world. Also in it is Kiki Lane, who was really good in Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk. The cast also features Chiwetel Ejiofor and Matthias Schoenartz. Now, Gina Prince-Bythewood directed original features Love and Basketball and Beyond the Lights. She also made an adaptation of the novel The Secret Life of Bees. The Old Guard, Adam, her newest, you got to see a little bit early, and I understand you are a fan. Yeah, I definitely am. And I don't know that I expected to be just because of the plot description. You start talking about immortal warriors and... It didn't, it didn't captivate no, me. doesn't Just sound like that, your cup of tea, to be honest. Yeah, maybe not. That plot synopsis didn't really excite me, but I'm glad I immediately just put that out of my mind and started watching because not only do I think everyone has their weekend entertainment plan set with this movie out on Netflix, I'm ready for the next installment of the franchise. I hope they make seven of these. I think The Old Guard is that good. and It's definitely worth seeing. And, you know, maybe it ties back to our Hamilton discussion a little bit. There is an urgency and a timeliness to this movie even as we have seen so many of the basic plot elements so many times before, like there's the Highlander part, there's the world of tomorrow slash live, die, repeat element. There's even kind of an X-Men element in terms of people trying to harness their special gift, their genetic gift, whatever it is for their own purposes. Of course, then manipulating science to play God makes you think of Frankenstein and so many other things. But beyond being directed by, a black woman. You've got another black woman in Kiki Lane in what is almost a co-lead. You've got an international cast. Two of the immortals are a gay couple whose love has survived centuries, Josh. But for me, it's really about the Somerset line from The End of Seven, the David Fincher movie, where we hear Morgan Freeman say, Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. Somerset had only witnessed 50 to 60 years of horror, and let's say in being a cop, actively fought 
against that horror for 30 or 40. Imagine witnessing and fighting back against centuries of atrocities, millennia of atrocities. At what point do you just accept it? And how do you go on fighting for what you think is right? That's really the central question amidst all the the fun action of the old guard that is so central to this film. And, you know, I'd be content to watch a movie where it's just this group of warriors reckoning with these choices, especially because I think the group of performers is so game. But adding the stakes of a new immortal, that's who Kiki Lane plays, who's emerging and has to be sought out and in some ways kind of save and her journey of accepting her new reality, the whole never dying thing turns out to be not quite so simple. And I like that touch. I'll just leave it there. There's also a flashback depiction of death that may haunt me for the rest of my life, Josh. And if that doesn't sound like fun, I'll say that I'm being genuine, but I'm also being playful because this is a comic book movie. It's a thoughtful one, but it's not Schindler's list and it's not the scene itself and that it's creatively gruesome necessarily. It's just about the lasting effects of the emotional trauma for the characters involved that that really did land. And I mentioned the action. There is probably a gratuitous amount of gunplay and headshots and blood splatter that you have to accept. It is definitely in that John Wick mode, I would say. But Prince Bythewood stages the action really effectively, and there's a mano a mano showdown in a confined space between Theron and Lane that's honestly a scene of the year candidate for me. So nice. I'd love to talk about a choice that's made at the end of this film, which obviously I will not get into. Maybe off air, Josh, once you've seen the movie, I'm not even saying that I think it's necessarily good or bad. I'm I'm just conflicted about it. And I do wish the villain was handled differently here. It's Harry Melling who is Dudley Dursley himself from Harry Potter, but also the artist from The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. So he was the the man with no arms who was the meal ticket in that sequence. He's a Bond villain by way of Mark Zuckerberg, who literally introduces himself at one point as the youngest CEO in pharma. And, <laughs> and there's no hint of self-awareness or parody to it whatsoever. And I think in a movie that has otherwise really complex and conflicted characters his true nature is way too obvious way too quickly it just felt to me like a character taken out of a less capably constructed and reflective story and plopped in to this one but that quibble aside i'm eager for you to see it well your x-men reference reminds me our friend matt singer i think he said something this is like an x-men movie where everyone in the cast was wolverine essentially which also sounds quite quite good to (laughs) me he would have matt singer being mr comic book guy that he is would have the right perspective on that for sure yeah and that sounds just great so uh the old guard is currently available on netflix if you want to check it out as well we're going to return to talk of musicals when we come back i think you can rightly call the cotton club encore a musical and we'll have some fun with Massacre Theater. Stay with us. Drop me off in Harlem. Yeah, good old Harlem. You have your fun under the Harlem sun. So drop me off in Harlem. There's Duke Ellington up in Harlem. He writes all his tunes in Harlem. And old Satchmo's still swinging way up in Harlem. All the cats are still up there. They're beating out those ribs and Apollo, Puerto Rico, to give you a great big lift. Yes, drop me off in Harlem. Yeah, man, beautiful Harlem. You 
get red beans and rice. It's very nice. Bam, bam, and This world's a treasure. It's been telling us to leave for a while now. Your daughter's generation will be the last to survive on Earth. You're the best pilot we ever had. Get out there and save the world. Everybody ready to say goodbye to our solar system? That's the trailer for Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, the checks notes here. Sixth best film of 2014, Josh. Sixth. <laughs> Sixth. Eh, might yeah. be a little high there, my friend. As I recall, Michael Caine, one of your favorite parts of the movie, I think. Mm. No, <laughs> I think he's doing a little bit of explaining there, possibly. Mm. Mm. That could be a common refrain next week. I can't wait for you to explain as we get to our next installment in our Christopher Nolan overview, mostly chronological look at the director's work. And this film, of course, his ambitious and yes, sometimes a little talky mission to deep space to save the human race. Josh, people are already fired up. I probably inflamed it a little bit by being so quote unquote wrong about Inception on our last show. <laughs> and now people are already anticipating your wrongness about Interstellar. The emails are flooding in. Yeah, I, I'm sure. I mean, they, they just don't know what to do with themselves when, when you're the apparent villain, Adam. This is True. everything's topsy turvy. So they need right. the world to be balanced. They yep. need their man to be put in his proper place. I'll be completely honest. I'm hoping to come around on Interstellar. I mean, it's yeah. it's really the only Nolan film that I had significant issues with, and I've got it ranked very low. I think at this point it might be last in my Nolan ranking. And I said at the beginning of this endeavor, I'm pretty sure it will rise from there. Um, we will see. I'm going to give it a shot. Also next week, the results from the current film spotting poll, kind of a niche poll this time, inspired by our Cotton Club review on this show. The question, what is the best film about jazz or jazz musicians? You have many options, including the Cotton Club, Damien Chazelle's La La Land, Spike Lee's Mo Better Blues, Round Midnight from 1986 about Dexter Gordon and others. Damien Chazelle currently winning. He's got two options in the poll, and Whiplash is running away with it, Josh. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't still vote and make a case for the one you love most. Filmspotting.net is where you can find that. Had to make sure we gave some time to the sad passing this last weekend of Ennio Morricone, 91 years old. Lived a pretty full life, by all accounts. Josh, credited with composing scores for over 500 films beginning in the early 60s. Nominated for six Oscars, including Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven, The Mission, Brian De Palma's The Untouchables, Bugsy in 1992, the Warren Beatty film, 2000's Milena, and he did finally win in 2015 for Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. Worth noting that came eight years after he was already awarded a Lifetime Achievement Oscar. He got that in 2007. Well, look at the range of work represented there in very different titles. And all of that doesn't even include what he's probably best known for, I would think, his long collaboration with Sergio Leone. That started in 1968 with A Fistful of Dollars and then the rest of the Dollars trilogy. He went on to work on Once Upon a Time in the West, The Good, The Bad and the Ugly, and then also Leone's final film, 1984's Once Upon a Time in America. And yes, if you paid attention to that date, you will likely already know that we are going to do Once Upon a Time in America in our 8 from 84 series. That'll be coming up in maybe a month or so, I think, Adam. Yeah. And um, because 
as you said, Morricone is such a monumental figure. We're probably going to give a top five devoted to him to pair with our Once Upon a Time in America review. Yeah, a listener decided to help us out with our production planning and said, you know, you could just switch your eight from 84, hold off on the Cotton Club, do Once Upon a Time in America this week to pay tribute to Morricone. We decided to stick with our plan. And the biggest reason why was not only do we need to set aside those three hours plus for Once Upon a Time in America, and I can't wait, that movie, and we'll talk more about blind spots in a second, that movie, probably my number two all-time blind spot. But really, we wanted to make sure that we gave this artist his due and really thought through our top five and maybe we have to take in some other work of his and some other films that he scored in order to make sure we were doing him justice so yeah maybe three or four weeks away we will get to that show we wanted to quickly fill you in on what's going on with our sister podcast the next picture show right now they are offering part one of their mirth wind and fire pairing love that title they're looking at the new eurovision song contest the story of fire saga the will ferrell comedy with rachel mcadams and then they're going to pair it with christopher guest 2003 folk scene parody the mighty wind now i do have to say i liked eurovision song contest overall adam i was favorable on it, but if it fell short, it was because I had the mighty wind in the back yeah. of my mind as, as kind of a that. model of, of what it could have been. So I can't wait to hear these two episodes. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes post every Tuesday. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts. And more information is at nextpictureshow.net. We wanted to thank listeners who have been extremely generous and gone to our Patreon page and decided to become family members, have a couple of emails we wanted to read before we share with you some of the benefits of being a family member if you haven't already subscribed. Geraldine Hakewell wrote in and said, this patronage is long overdue. I've been listening on and off for years, but my re-entry this year, just as I'm beginning to study directing, has been joyous and incredibly educational. Your love of film and obvious love of discussing it together makes for one of my favorite podcasts in the history of all caps here, all podcasts. And I'm so grateful for all the time and energy and enthusiasm that you must put into it each week. It hasn't gone unnoticed. Here's to many, many more years of learning and listening and laughing at atrocious massacre theater. Thank you for making me want to make movies. Well, thank you, Geraldine, and best of luck. Yeah, thank you so much, especially for the all caps. That that really makes us feel good. Scott Falkowski also wrote in, I'm a pretty new arrival to your show. I started checking out your episodes late last year upon the recommendations of a coworker, himself a longtime listener. After a few months of listening, I decided to show some appreciation by contributing a one-time donation to your podcast. However, the content you've been providing over the past several episodes convinced me to make the commitment to become a regular monthly subscriber. So Scott and Geraldine joining our family members who get ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early downloads, and more, including a monthly bonus episode. Last month was our first foray into video. We showed off our Criterion closets. The July poll is up and running now. You still have some time to have your vote count. And it's an all-blind spotting edition. So what we did is we took my biggest blind spot, the one... More listeners have tissed me about, and rightfully so, over the past 10 years or so, Josh. It's Akira Kurosawa's The Seven Samurai. You've seen it. I have not. My most egregious blind spot. You can currently see it on CriterionChannel.com, and it's available over at HBO Max. Now, you have a big blind spot as well, one I've seen, and it's another film from Francis Coppola, but it's The Conversation from 74. 
Indeed. And having just watched Cotton Club, I'd love to keep the Coppola uh, vibe going here. But yeah, there's always a good excuse to watch Seven Samurai again. Our third option is going to be also timely. Gina Prince-Bythewood's Love and Basketball. So her latest, which Adam has recommended, The Old Guard, comes to Netflix this weekend. Um, I think Love and Basketball is probably her most beloved film. I know that people just go nuts for this one, and it's a film that neither of us has seen, Adam. So we've got one blind spot for you as an option, one blind spot for me, and then Love and Basketball would be new to both of us if that's the way family members vote. Yeah, right now, not surprisingly, The Seventh Samurai is in the lead, but there is still time to vote if you are a family member. And a reminder that we're about 40 patrons away from hitting our goal of 900. When we do that, you get to participate in a virtual watch party with us. We don't know what the movie is. You'll get to help choose the movie, but you'll get to watch a movie along with me, Josh, and Sam. Patreon.com slash filmspotting. All right, it's time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A few shows ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. Hey, Mike, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your extra pair? No, Stan. No? What do you mean, no? Just what I said, no. No means no. Some f- friend. You're some f- Friend, you know that? You gotta learn, Stanley. Every time you come up here, you got your goddamn head up your ass. Maybe he likes the view from up there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Every time he comes up, he's got no knife, he's got no jacket, he's got no pants, he's got no boots. Always got that stupid gun he carries around like John Wayne. <laughs> that ain't gonna help you. Oh, what the hell, Mike? Give him no boots. No way, I ain't giving him no boots. No more, no more, that's it. You're a bastard, you know that? Huh? Stanley, see this? This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own. That was Robert De Niro and John Cazale in 1978's The Deer Hunter, which was written by Derek Washburn and directed by Michael Cimino. Along with that massacre, that episode featured our review of Spike Lee's Defive Bloods, and our listeners have connections. This from Rita Jefferson. She's from Washington, D.C., though she notes she's in the process of moving back to Chicago. Connections between Deer Hunter and Defive Bloods are plenty, as both are films dealing with the experiences of Americans fighting in the Vietnam War and the PTSD most of the characters deal with, explicitly stated or not. Another funny piece of trivia to link De Niro and Spike Lee is that Martin Scorsese was originally supposed to direct Clockers with De Niro in the starring role. Scorsese decided to do Casino instead and gave Clockers to Lee, who made it his own by flipping the lead characters, giving the lead role to Mackay Pfeiffer. This piece of trivia brought to you by my obsession with Casino, I still need to see Clockers. Now I'm just thinking about the possibilities of a very New York movie directed by Spike, starring Bobby, A Girl Can Dream. Mm, Indeed, Rita, and welcome back to Chicago. Here's Alex Lappins from Knoxville, Tennessee. Incidentally, years ago when I was a graduate music student, I took a film music course. My final paper was comparing the music in conflict scenes in Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, Apocalypse Now, and The Deer Hunter. It turns out, during the entire POW Russian roulette sequence in The Deer Hunter, there's no music at all, diegetic or non-diegetic. It's remarkable how that lack of ornament makes the scene all the more intense and inhuman. 
Dirk from Wellington, New Zealand writes, it doesn't happen often, but I immediately recognize the quote from 1978's Deer Hunter. In college, I was president of the video club. The illustrious position went to whoever could be bothered walking weekly to the local video rental store to get a new VHS to watch. <laughs> Those were the days. One time I ran a 48-hour video marathon. I offered a prize to whoever could match a list of quotes to the movies we showed, and after a lot of VHS fast-forwarding, found a decent quote from each movie. For Deer Hunter, that was, this is this. This isn't something else. This is this. Obviously, Dirk then did know it well, Josh. And yeah, it's not like today where you pretty much just can find any quote you want at your fingertips. No. <laughs> just imagine doing that, having to fast forward. <laughs> not fun. There weren't a lot of Dirks out there, though. Maybe this movie didn't quite hit the nostalgic beat that Labyrinth did a few weeks ago. A lot fewer entries. If you haven't seen The Deer Hunter... Heavy viewing, long viewing, mm -hmm. but I would say very, very worth it. We do have a winner. So reach into the not-so-brimming hat and tell us who it is. The winner is Julio Alvera from Austin, Texas, where I got to have a beer with Julio not too long ago. So congratulations, Julio. What's better, the film spotting t-shirt he's going to get for winning Massacre Theater or the beer he had with you? Well, I, I don't think I should answer that. <laughs> Email feedback at filmspotting.net, Julio, and we will set you up with that shirt. The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first. In the bush! So maybe a little bit of a clue here as we get into this edition of Massacre Theater. Josh, you were disappointed off-air that you weren't going to get to play this performer quite as unhinged mm. as he usually is on screen. That's a, that's a good word, unhinged, yeah. You I think, still could, though. Well, so the, here's my challenge. Do I stay true to the text, which you know is my usual mode, Adam? Uh -huh. Always oh, yeah. true to the text. Um, or I do, do I just have fun and, and do the most exaggerated version of this actor? Um, we'll see what happens. I maybe, like it. Maybe I'll mix it up. <laughs> true inspiration. It'll come to you in the moment. Yes. I think you... I was going to say, hopefully we'll be able to channel this performer, but I actually wouldn't wish that on <laughs> someone I really value and like, Josh. Thank you. You are going to start it off, so get ready. I'm going to give you the action. Okay, let's go. And action. Well, well, if it isn't the smoker, remember me, amigo? Hmm. Course you do. El Paso! It's a small world. Yes, and very, very bad. Now, come on. You light another match. I generally smoke just after I eat. Why don't you come back in about ten minutes? Ten minutes? You'll be smoking in hell. Get up! <laughs> and, and scene. scene. I'm terrified. I just, I couldn't keep it tamped down for the whole <laughs> scene. Sorry. No. If you know what movie we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. If you haven't figured it out, just think about the fact that we do try to tie it typically to something we have talked about on this show. Your deadline is Monday, July 22nd. You know, the problem with doing these recordings at home now is I think the family's really worried about what's happening in the closet. <laughs> they're really concerned. I, love I mean, it. they're used to us arguing loudly, but it doesn't sound yeah. quite, quite that drastic. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. It was the age of jazz and gangsters and bootleg booze. The age of everything but innocence. 
Excuse me, I'm looking for Mr. Dutch Schultz. Do you know him? Sure. Everybody knows a Dutchman. A handful of mobs ruled the city. I got this girl coming. You keep her company, you make me look good. A handful of men ruled the mobs. His records are very appealing to me. New York was their kingdom. This was their playground. The Cotton Club. Sounds from the trailer for Francis Ford Coppola's The Cotton Club made $25 million at the box office, about $60 million in today's money, Josh, back in December 1984. Unfortunately, and pretty infamously, the shoot went way over budget. It cost the equivalent of $150 million today. That was 58 back in 84. So very simple math tells you not a box office success. A couple of years ago, Coppola actually found a longer cut of the film and spent a half million dollars restoring it. I saw somewhere that he cut about 13 minutes, I think, and added about 27 minutes of new footage to the Cotton Club Encore as it was released in select theaters last year. It is now available on demand. Overall, seemed to be received favorably by critics, more favorably than the original 84 disaster. Probably not fair, but at least in terms of its expectations, it was, we have not seen the original. We decided to make the encore our sole focus for this 8 from 84 discussion. And we mentioned it off the top of the show. For the most part, this series has been a nostalgic look back for us at 84, movies we've seen multiple times and loved back when we were 9 or 10 years old. Now, there are some exceptions. Neither of us were sophisticated enough as grade schoolers to appreciate Jonathan Demme stopped making sense at the time, and you weren't one of the beautiful ones who watched Purple Rain on repeat like I did back oh, in 84. Oh, but did I get to enjoy it in 2020? <laughs> yes, you did. This one is a blind spot for both of us, and it's sort of nostalgic look back for Coppola at the late 1920s and early 1930s, maybe more accurately a nostalgic look back at gangster pictures from that period, but you've got greed, misogyny, violence, and very blatant racism. Black people here are performing exclusively for white audiences and exclusively white owners. You don't have to strain to see the historic parallels. White people getting rich off the backs and the feet and faces and voices of black people and in Harlem. And because it's the best game in town for their talents, they have to be grateful for the opportunity. But Josh, those performances, right? Those are such a key part, at least of this new cut. And that apparently is where Coppola put most of his energy in terms of the added footage. Was it enough for you to applaud the Cotton Club Encore? Well, that's the central question, right? Are those performances taking place in the Cotton Club that Coppola is filming? What do we make of those? Because by all counts, as as you said, we haven't seen the original version. Um, they're they're expanded on here. And and I would put them in two different categories, okay? The, the main story, you have Richard Gere as this cornet player who gets involved with gangsters and also involved with um, Diane Lane's mall, right? That's kind of the main story. And they're trying to balance that more here with this side story of uh, Sandman Williams, played by Gregory Hines, and his brother Clay, played by Maurice Hines, who is Gregory's own brother, who are aspiring tap dancers trying to work their way up in this club scene. And so we get more sequences with um, the Heinz brothers, as well as other sequences in the Cotton Club of performers who we don't get to know as well. And for me, 
there was a difference in terms of the sort of respect that Coppola is trying to give to his cast and to the historical talent he's capturing here. When the Heinz are on screen, um, the camera remains mostly fixed on them, gives them the whole stage, doesn't get too fussy, and lets us appreciate their talent. I would say it does the same for another character we meet. This is Lila, played by Lynette McKee. She's a singer performing in the Cotton Club who Heinz Sandman becomes involved in. When she sings Stormy Weather, which might be my favorite number in the whole film, uh, it just blows the doors off, is a powerhouse emotionally. And again, Coppola is mostly letting us just see her give her performance. Doesn't get too fancy. I think the camera does move more in on her face, which is crucial there because we've come to learn about Lila at this point that she's not just singing about, you know, a man who's gone away. The blues she's singing about are tied to the racism she's experiencing and the mm-hmm. sexism she's experiencing as a performer. So we have some context there too, right? Um, we know context for what um, Sandman and his brother Clay have been experiencing and how important these auditions are to, the, to them. And so those production numbers are distinct for me from the production numbers that are in the Cotton Club that are um, more trying to capture what it was like historically at the time. And they're distinct in two ways. Formally, Coppola's camera is much more active in most of those. It's weaving Mm -hmm. among the dancers. Um, Even if he's added footage here, we usually just get snippets. We don't get full production numbers. Um, And so the filmmaking is a little different. But also, you know, these performances are really minstrelsy what we're seeing and if you look a lot of them yeah this is true to the historical record right it's not Mm -hmm. like coppola is making this up the cotton club performances were often designed for the white audiences to reinforce negative black stereotypes and the performers engaged in this as you said a lot of times this was the work that they could get um and so my question is how much removed is the movie from that experience? Are are we just another white audience watching it, trying to thread that needle, like, you know, pointing out what is awful about this context, but also appreciating the talent? I just don't know if the Cotton Club, even though it's made changes with Encore to do that better, still does it successfully. It's, it's still, I don't know if it entirely escapes the white vantage point of its creators, I guess is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. And the, the sequences that I sensed that the most were some of those Cotton Club numbers. So I, I don't know. It's this was. I'm really glad I saw this movie. I liked it overall, um, and I can see why Coppola would want to do this version. Um, but I don't know if he completely pulls off what he was hoping to do. Yeah, I think that's completely fair and worthy of discussion. I think my issues with the film lie maybe more in just the narrative itself and how choppy. It is. I just don't Mm -hmm. think it gets over the fact that it's trying to shoehorn so many stories into the mix. And we can talk about that a little bit more, but I want to get to your last point there. We both touched on it, the sort of tragic irony of these performers and how they had to make a living performing at a club like this. And it's now front and center. The very opening scene of this movie speaks to this. And I understand this was an addition. It wasn't in the original version. You actually... Start out on high watching a car roll up to the Cotton Club and a couple get out and try to get in. And the black doorman is turning away a couple because the woman appears to be colored. Yeah. And when he is questioned kind of playfully about that, why he works for those Ophays, which is a derogatory term for the white owners of the club, he says the truth. Ophays pays. They pay. 
right? That's that's how you make a living. It means compromise. Some of that is artistic for these people. Some of it is just what the doorman has to do in turning people of his own race away to get into a club that is in some ways celebrating their culture, right? Or at least, as we said, capitalizing off of their culture. And you're dead on that there is a minstrel element to some of the numbers that just heightens that tragic irony that not only do they have to perform only for whites, but they have to perform in some instances as caricatures of themselves. And real quick, Adam, I I just wanted to jump in that opening scene you're talking about. Um, Did you catch on the soundtrack? We hear a rate, a, sn- a snippet of a speech on a car radio where the yep. words emancipation. So, mm. so both of these things show that this is on Coppola's mind, right? He's yes. well aware of this history and is trying to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of little touches like that where if you're listening closely, there's a radio or something in the background, some discussion. There were some Altman-esque touches even where you hear other people having a conversation, but it is coming through in the sound design. In terms of the performances themselves, there is a certain joy in just watching these performers do what they do best. And you mentioned how active his camera is during a lot of those sequences. I think there is a propulsion and an energy and a joy in that expression that is undeniable and really just impossible to not enjoy. I'm thinking even of something like Cab Calloway and his number, the mini, the moocher number. But you're dead on that the best performances here, the best moments in this film are when the scenes don't just feel sort of like ornaments that help tell the story of the cotton club in terms of what was happening there at the time and who some of those performers were and the type of performances that were going on and the reason why people came out to have a good time there anyway. But it's actually about the characters. It's about the characters actually getting to tell their own story. And that Lynette McKee stormy weather performance is probably the main one, but there are others. It has a true emotional arc. You said it perfectly. There's a real weight just to the performance itself. You're going through something with her. You're not just observing and kind of, in a way, even siphoning off the talent, which it feels Mm -hmm. like sometimes Mm -hmm. you're doing as a viewer, right? And did you ever feel watching some of those scenes, Adam, a little bit what you felt like watching during our Manelli Marathon, Cabin in the Sky? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was way back in, in 1943, but it's kind of negotiating the same thing. Like some of the depictions there, and as far as we could tell, you know, Manelli had good intentions. I think there's even a preface to that film about this being a work of, of cultural acceptance, mm-hmm. yet, it, yet it too is engaging in stereotypes, right? Um, so it's that same sort of juggling act of, of of honoring the talent, even if they're asked to do things that would fall under like a minstrel category. So that, yeah, I had some of the same feel here. It's so complicated, right? Because 
we're watching it as white viewers detached from the experience of the performers themselves who were also obviously engaging in these performances, but they were doing it because not only is it how they made a living, the only real opportunity they were being given to perform, but in their own way, of course, they're celebrating, I'm sure in their minds, their culture as well. Just getting to be on that stage and showcase their talent and be part of an ensemble and be part of a collection that was getting an opportunity to express their artistic abilities, that was worth those compromises. Well, right? and yeah, and what you're looking for, I think, are the moments where you see them grabbing um their own dignity, even within this context. And, yeah. and it, it makes me think of, you know, Ethel Waters in Cabin in the Sky. Uh, Ethel Waters, who the real Ethel Waters also performed at the Cotton Club, by the way. But she just kind of, the best moments for me in Cabin in the Sky were, were when she took over and was like, okay, there's a lot of BS going on around here, but right now in this moment, I'm going to make this my movie. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she would, and she could. Well, and, and you're right. And you see, like, that's what happens here. I think Heinz does it here in a couple of yes. the numbers. I think that, um, I think that definitely McKee does it. And McKee is a performer I wasn't really familiar with and just like incredibly impressed with uh, her presence uh, as an actress, but really as, as a musician as well and a singer. And, you know, again, this, this is a compromise. This is a complication the movie is aware of. And to its credit, um, gives a chance for its black characters to speak to as well. When Clay is talking to his brother, Sandman, so this is Maurice Hines, um, he gets a great line as they're talking about their audition for the Cotton Club and you know how they're going to handle this. And he says, you start giving white people what they think they want, soon you got no blood left. Mm. So they understand what they're getting into and it's not simple. And then the film is not simple either. Actually, there's a really amazing shot um, that captures a lot of this. And it comes right after Clay says that because he and Sandman are exiting their brownstone talking together. They're walking down the steps. It's a great single take Coppola has following down their steps. And then it swings around, follows them as they walk down the street and they keep talking. And then you see coming our way is Richard Gere's Dixie with a couple of guys. And they the two groups acknowledge each other. I think Sandman is the first one to say uh, something like, how you doing, or something like that. And, mm -hmm. uh, and Dixie says, or I think Sandman says, hey, Dixie. And Dixie responds, how you doing? And then what happens? The camera, we still haven't cut, picks up with Dixie, the three white characters, and yeah. goes along with them and follows with them. And I think it's, it's a really elegant shot, but it also captures... The tension at the heart of this film is how are we going to balance this? How are we going to be fair to the history, to all of these characters? And I think it sounds like we both feel not all of the balance is as elegant as that shot. It gets a little it gets a little off through most of the movie, I'd say. Yeah. And that gets back to my point about the narrative itself. It cuts both ways, right? I haven't seen the original. I cannot imagine spending the bulk of this movie on Richard Gere's Dicks and Diane Lane's Vera and James Remar's The Dutchman, which is apparently what the original mostly does or does to a greater extent. But here in trying to be more fair and in valuing truly the way he should have the first time, appreciating those talents and those contributions of the black performers, he's rightfully giving them more screen time and giving more screen time to those storylines. But He's also fractured the narrative to the point where 
I didn't feel like there was any concrete point of view with this mm. film. And I think you're right that when it does have to default, it's going to default to the white characters and default to Gear and to Diane Lane. They're just huge character and story elements that get encompassed in a montage or in, in a yeah. calendar year turning on yes. screen. And, and Coppola is artful about it. Of course he is, but it still feels like a shortcut. And even the relationship that's probably the most interesting at the core of this film, Sandman and Lila Rose, they they're in love one moment, they're out of love, they're back in it, then they're they're not together. Yeah. There's a version of this movie where all of these characters' ambitions and needs, and that's really what it's about. All these characters have ambitions and needs that they need fulfilled. And they could overlap and intersect in a way that is satisfying. I'm sure a filmmaker is capable of it. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's not it's not from what I hear the original version of this or this patchwork new version. No, the relationships, especially the romantic ones, are very thinly realized and the structure does not help in in making up for that, I would say. I also think, you know, the costume design is so heavy in this film that especially Gear and uh, Diane Lane, Gear is saddled with, he wears these sunglasses almost all the time and a very extremely period hat, let's say. Lane yeah. has all of these flapper-inspired headpieces that aren't really doing her any favors uh, because I think Gear has a ton of charisma here. I mean, he's probably in his prime right now, 84. And he definitely, you can see, this is a story you are as kind of generic as it is you are interested in following this character because he does have this charisma to him. But then, you know, also there are the elements where he's the only white cornet player allowed to play with the Cotton Club band, which is, you right. know, just... It feels icky. It feels icky. And, <laughs> and you know, some of this yeah. we should say, just because we're talking about story and structure in that. So the movie itself, it looks like was based on what's called the pictorial history of the Cotton Club by Jim Haskins. Um, so from that comes this screenplay by Coppola and William Kennedy, and then there is a story credit for The Godfather's Mario Puzo. So this just kind of circles back to, um, you know, Kennedy, Coppola, Puzo. Um, obviously, they're going to bring their own cultural perspective to, um, to this movie. And with the best of intentions, sometimes that's just not going to work because any story about the cotton club has got to be a black story, right? It's just, if you look at the yeah. history, it's got to be, and I know it was owned, it had white owners and a largely white clientele, but still, um, if you look at the entirety of that period, it is a black story. And so, you know, I don't know if we've ever talked about this on air, but I know we have back and forth sometimes off air, Adam, about, you know, who has the right to tell what stories and usually we'll land on, I think we both land on anyone can tell any story, um, but that doesn't, for me at least, I'll say, that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be good at it or make it work. And they may have limit limitations um, that are going to hurt the final product. And I think in this case, you could just kind of see some of those limitations. Um, maybe a, a positive example from the Cotton Club, because again, I did like the movie overall, that I want to give of where Coppola can do this is that sequence, which I'll just call the Hoofers Club. And this mm -hmm. is where Lila Rose and Sandman are together. You're right. I think they're having another one of their random arguments at this point. Right. But, but they go to this daytime club where it's all these old timers. It's a black only place. And they just start talking about dancing and the old timers are going to show them how it's supposed to be done. And we get this really lovely routine 
of each person kind of taking their chance to show off what they can do. The camera does cut for close-ups of their feet here and there, but otherwise, again, it's a pretty restrained, let the performances speak moment. Um, and for me, that felt purer and freer than a lot of the other sequences that we do get in Encore. Yeah, I agree. It's one of the highlights of the film for sure. I'm curious what you thought then about one of the grander flourishes in the film, truly the bravura sequence, which is impossible to watch and not see it through the lens of one of the most famous sequences in film history, The Godfather and the baptism at the end of The Godfather 1. So there's a little bit of an element of Coppola pulling a trick out of his bag, but you know what? Damn it, he's earned the right to do that, and lots of great filmmakers do it. But there is a major sequence in this movie where we see Sandman and his tap dance. It's a solo cross-cut with a gangland execution. And it does feel like one of those sequences, and maybe it's because you do undeniably end up having the godfather in your mind as you watch it you feel like there should be music playing it's the kind of grand mm, flourish that yeah. needs music to really give it this sweep but there is none other than heinz ratatat tapping away and there is such a contrast in that that i was really fascinated by more than mm -hmm. anything like i'm still conflicted about how i feel about it because on yeah. the one hand there's a sense of true artistic transcendence in what gregory heinz is doing with his feet and yet somehow Cut with that execution, his furious tapping feels futile. It mm. feels like it, it just kind of underscores the meaninglessness of any of these endeavors, of all of this ambition. And maybe in doing that, Josh, to make it more complicated, in underscoring its meaninglessness, it only underscores just how important it is. How important it is to have those kind of moments of transcendence through art of a character like Sandman there giving his all just to that moment. And it existing for people to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. I really like the ambition of it. I think it could have worked better if we had been as invested in the gang element of this story. But but yeah. as it is, that execution, those execution segments of that parallel sequence are not deserving of Gregory Hines tap dancing and and the gap is just too wide and, and it's just because we as an audience we are more invested in Sandman performing and what that means for him than mm -hmm. we really are in whether or not that gangster gets shot um, yeah. that's kind of immaterial and so I think the gap between those two things in terms of our emotional investment is just what makes that sequence not entirely work yeah I agree with that completely I will say I was disappointed to learn today and I think somehow this happens to all of us. I just found out today that Gregory Hines passed away in 2003. I somehow watching this movie, Josh, had convinced myself that, man, I miss Gregory Hines as a performer. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about how much I wanted to see him. I knew he would be of more advanced age, obviously, here in 2020. But that slipped by me somehow that he has been gone, I think, liver cancer since like 2003. But he was talk about nostalgia for me in the early 80s. I adored Running Scared, the Buddy Cop movie with him and Billy Crystal. Oh, sure. And yep. I went to see White Knights with Gregory Hines and Barishnikov at the movie theater with my mom. And I just always think of him as this tremendous talent and a great charismatic presence on screen. This movie reminded me of that. And it reminded me of how much I missed him. And there was a part of me that was kind of hoping that he was getting to reap the benefits of this encore and people reappreciating him. And unfortunately, that's just going to have to be part of his legacy. 
you know what he had and you know he was very different and had very distinct talents from Fred Astaire in many ways but what he shared with Astaire that I noticed in this movie is just always wanting to make the moment dance. And -hmm. I think of when he's walking with clay, when Sandman is walking with clay down those brownstone steps and he just turns it into a routine, right? He's just going out for the day, but he's not going to walk down those steps normally. He's going to turn it into a little dance. And that That just musicality. Yeah. yeah, It's in every fiber of his being. It's how he lived. And that reminded me of how Astaire moved through his movies too. So yeah, Heinz is great. Um, Quickly, we just got to mention Nicolas Cage here who I, I don't know. Do we? He's kind of giving like a late cage performance very early in his career. Now this, to be fair, this came after Valley Girl, where I think he is wonderful, just like swooning. I swoon for him in Valley Girl. But ooh, as um, yeah, as Dixie's younger brother, hothead, uh, he's uh, he's not great. Let's just say he's not no, great. No, he's not. And it's another case of the movie trying to cram too many characters and too much plot sure. into this overfilled story. So. I don't think we ever really understand what someone like Vincent is all about, but Cage doesn't, he doesn't help. He makes him erratic to the point of feeling like he's almost in another film entirely. I agree. Pretty much. Who is great and who maybe already gets more screen time than the original, but could still deserve more is Lawrence Fishburne as gangster Bumpy Rhodes. Yeah. He has played later in Hoodlum, which I haven't seen. Okay, he has um, a great line that reminded me of another uh, marathon movie we we watched, Adam. But he's talking to Sandman at one point, and he says, he's playing a gangster again. He says, the white man left me nothing but the underworld, and that's where I dance. So again, one of those cases where, like, imagine Lawrence Fishburne saying that, not me. And, and you get a sense, what rang to my ears was Superfly. Like the speeches we yeah. heard in Superfly yeah. about being this dealer who's been, it's his only resort, right, is to be this pusher man. Um, now, of course, Superfly would have come out before the Cotton Club, but the Cotton Club speaking to an era earlier than the 70s. So you just see kind of this this cycle of experience. And yeah, Fishburne is just great in this for the couple of times that he shows up. Yeah, he really is, as is, I would say, Bob Hoskins as oh, only yeah. Madden, who's kind of the, the ringleader, the big gangster presence in this town and in terms of owning the club. And Fred Gwynn, who oh, plays so his right-hand fun. man. There's there's an exchange that they have. There's a bit they have. And I call yes. it a bit because it, it almost does feel like it's out of a vaudeville act. Totally. And it almost feels a little bit out of place in this otherwise kind of humorless movie but man do they deliver it they make that moment absolutely work yeah and it's given a lot of time to breathe so it makes me wonder if that is maybe something that was added too but yeah of course fred gwynn from the monsters you know is is kind of who i always think of but here doing something very different and he's both threatening as this henchman um a huge presence right but very funny as well very nimble so i loved i love their little comedy routine kind of what you were saying in terms of the moment itself not being up to the cinematic gravitas that Coppola gives that gangland shootout. I did love, even though I'm suggesting it was superfluous, I love how he shot Lucky Luciano when he shows up at the end of the film in the club. Oh, yeah. Charles Luciano. He is given such momentousness just in the way the the curtain closes around him and shrouds him. And every time he cuts to like a low angle close up of him, he's half in dark, half in light. He's just such a fascinating character without even saying anything. Just in the way Coppola mm-hmm. shoots him in about three close ups. I was hoping that the movie had actually been about him the entire time. (laughs) You're right. There's a real mystique in just a couple of moments there. Yeah. 
The Cotton Club Encore is available on demand on most platforms. And if you want to check out previous and future titles from our 8 from 84 series, you can get that at filmspotting.net slash 8 from 84. If you have thoughts on The Cotton Club, we would love to hear them. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. If you have thoughts about this show, which is in the books, Josh, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote there in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking, what is the best film about jazz or jazz musicians? If you want a show t-shirt or any other merch, go to Filmspotting.net slash shop. And you know you want to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can do that at Filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out this weekend, definitely some titles to check out that we can recommend. Kelly Reichert's First Cow coming to VOD finally, our collective number one film of the year so far. Indeed. Tom Hanks is in Greyhound exclusively on Apple+. Plus. The Old Guard, Gina Prince-Bythewood with Charlize Theron, recommended by me strongly. That's on Netflix now. Palm Springs is also out after meeting at a wedding. Andy Samberg and Kristen Milati keep repeating the same day over and over. That's on Hulu, so another kind of familiar storyline or angle, but maybe doing something new and interesting with it. I do really want to see Palm Springs, and we'll probably give that some time next week on the show. Relic is out. That's a new horror film that's a feature debut from Natalie Erica James. It stars Emily Mortimer and Sometimes, Always, Never, not to be confused with Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, a movie that also made both of our lists of the top five movies of the year so far. This one is a bittersweet comedy with Bill Nye that you can see on VOD. Next week on the show, we will get to the review that listeners are eager for, Nolan and Interstellar, part of our Christopher Nolan oeuvre review, and as we said, Palm Springs, maybe some other titles that we catch up with. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.